This is an ABC podcast. Hi, from David Rutledge, welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. This week, a zone of clinical ethics. By virtue of their training, doctors are focused on clinical outcomes, which doesn't mean they have no moral sensibility, far from it. But sometimes, when there are difficult medical decisions to be taken, it can help to have a philosophically trained ethicist in the room. This week, we're taking a hypothetical case. Emily is four years old, and she has brain cancer. Emily's about to start treatment that will give her a good chance of survival. But that treatment will also damage her ovaries and affect her fertility. As a result of the chemo, she probably won't be able to conceive, either naturally or via IVF. Her parents have found out that there's a new process being developed aimed at preserving the fertility of children like Emily. The process involves surgery to remove ovarian tissue before chemo. The tissue is then frozen, it's stored at an IVF clinic and re-implanted when Emily becomes an adult. But Emily's doctors are hesitating. The process is experimental. It isn't standard practice in Australia or anywhere around the world. The surgery involves a small degree of risk and there's no guarantee of a baby down the track. So the doctors have ethical concerns. Should a child be exposed to risk when the benefit is so uncertain? Well, producer Ros McDougall sat down with two ethicists to talk about Emily's case and about their work in hospitals, Professor Lynn Gillam and Associate Professor Claire Delaney, both medical ethicists at the University of Melbourne. They talked about what happens when ethicists and doctors reflect together, and in the hypothetical case of four-year-old Emily, the question of what constitutes her well-being. The question of what's going to promote a child's well-being is actually a really complicated question where we need to look at things related to their physical health but also their emotional and psychological well-being, you know, just being able to have good experiences, happy times, being able to relate to their family and to have social interactions. So different potentially for each child depending on the things that are important to them, perhaps different for each family in in terms of what matters to them, how they see as a good life for their child. And clinicians and ethicists also bring their own ideas of what counts as a good life to the table. So a lot of the discussion is around uh, those sorts of issues and we realise increasingly that there are no black and white or hard and fast rules about that. So if we think back to Emily's case where the parents want an experimental fertility preservation procedure Mm -hmm. and the doctors aren't really sure if the benefits are worth the risks, Mm. how would we think about Emily's well-being in that kind of um, case? Uh, So I think the first thing to note is that we're thinking about Emily's well-being at two different time points. One is right now when she's having treatment for cancer and there's this proposed uh, additional surgical procedure to retrieve some ovarian tissue. So one aspect of it is what will her experience of that be in terms of, for example, is that likely to cause her some sort of pain or discomfort? What's the recovery time? What will be her experience afterwards? Might she simply be frightened of that procedure? And then there's the longer term. We need to imagine Emily, say, 20 years down the track, in a situation where she might be considering having children. And then we're trying to think about how important would it be to her and to her well-being 
that she has an opportunity to at least try using some preserved tissue to have children. So we're projecting forwards as well as thinking about now. And in that projecting forwards, we're trying to imagine what would be important to the future, Emily. So there's clearly room for a difference of opinion in there. And we're thinking a lot about her psychological and social well-being, and probably not so much about her physical well-being. What about, um, what would be the kinds of ethical considerations that you'd discuss in a case like Emily's? So Mm. how might that discussion go? So in Emily's situation, remember, she has cancer and that's the most important thing. So ethically speaking, our first question would always be, we need to make sure that anything that's done in terms of attempting to preserve her fertility would not interfere with her cancer treatment. So that would always be the first question. We need to make sure that her treatment is not compromised in any way. And then going back to that idea of risks and benefits or burdens and benefits, we'd be thinking about what actually is the risk to Emily of having this procedure. So it's described as experimental, and that makes it sound a bit problematic or scary. But in fact, the surgical procedure to retrieve the tissue is very well established and it's quite low risk. So the procedure itself is not experimental. The experimental bit is in storing the tissue and hoping to be able to use that in the future to somehow produce eggs or to initiate a pregnancy. That's the bit where the science is unclear. So we'd be drawing on quite good, well-established evidence about the surgical, the anaesthetic risk and the surgical risk and weighing that up with this future psychological benefit of at least having some possibility of having children in the future. In those kinds of cases, it seems to me that as a philosopher, you're in there with very little understanding of the clinical kind of background. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And potentially the clinicians involved, uh, they're not not coming from a philosophical Mm. background either. So how does the discussion proceed Mm. when you're from such different kinds of knowledge? Mm. Uh, So I think the role of the ethicist in those situations is very much to ask questions. And uh, unlike lawyers' questions, we ask questions that we don't know the answer to. So it's important to ask what are the potential downsides to Emily, what are the potential risks to Emily of doing this. Uh, But as you say, I don't have any clinical knowledge or clinical experience, so I don't know what the answer that's going to be. All I know is that's a really important question to ask. This is why you need the ethicists and the clinicians in the room together. Uh, It's a very collaborative enterprise. Uh, And I guess with things like um, the benefit to Emily in the future of having the possibility of having her own child, that's a question that none of us are really expert on, but we can together go out and think about, is there any, any evidence out there which could give us some idea of what people in Emily's situation actually think having survived cancer in childhood. And there is quite a lot of evidence to suggest that fertility is a major consideration for survivors of childhood cancer. So we've got some reason to think in general that Emily is likely to value her chance for fertility in the future. Um, So that's the sort of thing that we can think about together. But very much the ethicist is asking the ethically important questions and assisting to interpret what the answers are. Because overall, this is a process of, I guess, balancing or weighing up 
competing considerations. And that's one of the skills, I guess, that the ethicist brings to the table is trying to do that in a relatively structured way. So talking about that balance, in Emily's case, how would that proceed? What are you balancing and how are you doing it? In very simple terms, we're thinking about what are the ethical pros and the ethical cons of doing this proposed procedure to retrieve ovarian tissue from Emily. So we're thinking about the cons are um, any risk to Emily of the procedure, so what could go wrong, what are the known burdens. So, for example, is this a new, a second surgical procedure that she might have to have uh, in the course of her cancer treatment or could it all be done in within a a surgical procedure that she's having anyway as part of her cancer treatment. But, you know, is she going to wake up feeling discomfort? Will she wonder what's happened? How are we going to explain that to her? So those are things about we're weighing the possible negatives for her in the short term against the long-term future benefits. Now, you can hear me struggling because that's actually not an easy thing to do. There's no neat algorithm that or calculation that lets you, you weigh those up. So it's a matter of assigning value, I guess. And one of the ways that we would do that, since Emily's too young to ask her herself, is to ask the parents essentially to speak on her behalf in terms of what they would see as the custodians, I guess, of her interests going forward, how they would value those two things. And parents go different ways. So for some parents, the even a small additional risk, save infection, is not worth the outside chance of fertility in the future. And for other parents, it definitely is. We can't say as a matter of objective truth in some sense that the prospect of future fertility matters more than some pain and discomfort now. Uh, It's a very subjective matter. And Claire, what do you think health professionals get out of being involved in this kind of discussion? So stepping out of their clinical lives to have a more philosophical discussion about some of their patients, what do you think health professionals get out of their involvement in clinical ethics? What I've noticed in um, working in this area, in speaking with lots of health professionals, both during and afterwards, is that they first of all get a lot out of having the space, and Lynn has already mentioned that, and the time for reflection on issues that they find troubling. So having those issues discussed and taken seriously is one outcome that um, is really valuable. And a second one is having other members of the multidisciplinary team with whom they may or may not ordinarily sit, having them sit and listen and comment on these ethical challenges such as Emily's case in deciding what to do and having people from different perspectives ask them questions gives them an opportunity to um, voice their moral puzzles. And I think talking about ethical uncertainty is extremely helpful, just being able to try to describe what it is that they're concerned about is in itself doing quite a lot of moral work. Mm. The other thing that happens in these meetings is that having a name being given to or a a label or 
a type of ethical issue being given to the topics that they think may or may not even be real. They're just worried about this issue. But when they come to an ethics committee, they realise that actually it's got a name. You know, this is a risk-benefit issue that needs to be taken seriously and weighed up. So I think the combination of talking through is a really big benefit, um, having space and having the facilitation from the ethicist because it's different to just sitting with clinicians without a, without a facilitator. You do need someone to be doing the interpreting and the making sense and I think that's, that's quite important. How do you think it's different having a philosopher as a facilitator rather than just say someone from HR come down and help them talk <laughs> through this <Ooh>. challenging... <laughs> That's dis- a scary thought. <laughs> um, I think there's a huge benefit in that the philosopher can ask the genuinely curious questions about clinical practice. And I think that's a big advantage in having an, um, the philosopher being like a critical outsider who asks what they mean by, you know, giving this injection, which everybody else in the room might know. So it might never be a point of discussion. And in having them explain their own practice, it really helps to clarify what this practice means and ha- what the effect of it will be on a person. The other big benefit is to be able to summarise the clinical concerns and name them as philosophical concepts about well-being or parental authority to decide for their child or or harms and benefits. So it provides a um, an outer casing of ethical concepts, which really helps sort of neaten up something that often just feels worrying and in the pit of your stomach. <laughs> On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. This week, producer Ros McDougall is talking with medical ethicists Lynn Gillam and Claire Delaney about the ins and outs of difficult decision-making in the hospital environment. An ethics discussion in the hospital isn't a one-way process, with the ethicist in the position of a judge delivering a verdict. But when a patient's well-being, or perhaps even their life, could be at stake, the pressure to make the right decision can be intense. So how do you deal with conflicting views in a clinical ethics discussion? In fact, we encourage conflicting views and state that at the beginning of the meeting to say that the goal of the discussion is to canvas the ethical values and issues associated with the problem that's being brought to the uh, meeting. And we do aim to canvas those ethical issues as critically as we can. So we don't want that process of groupthink to occur where we all start agreeing with each other or are all convinced with the sort of logic and concern that is being raised by one person. We actively encourage and even state that playing the devil's advocate is very acceptable within the meeting and where there's genuine difference. The goal of the ethicist in chairing that meeting is to genuinely be curious about that opinion. So 
I think that's where the skill and almost the magic of the uh, meeting occurs is that people's views are taken seriously no matter what their view is and it's considered as a potentially important moral view in relation to the case. Now, when people start to realise that's the case, they don't have to be strident about Mm. their views because they're going to be heard and so it sort of builds this ethics literacy in the group. And, Ros, if I can add to that, I think one of the jobs of the ethicist is to interpret those differences of opinion Mm. uh, to see what the significance is. So if we go back to Emily's situation, different clinicians would have quite different views about how likely it really is that that small piece of prepubertal ovarian tissue frozen now might lead to Emily having a baby in the future. But once we framed it in terms of zone of parental discretion and said the key question is would it, how harmful, if at all, would it be to Emily to take the tissue now in accordance with her parents' wishes, that decreases the emphasis on what are the likely outcomes, how likely is it that this technology will actually work in the future. So we acknowledge that the difference is there, but by framing it in that ethical way, we start to see that that particular difference of opinion uh, actually is not so critical. We don't have to resolve it. So with that process of ethical analysis within the hospital context, how do you see that as similar to or different from philosophical bioethics? Mm. I think the difference is that the outcome has to be clinicians going away with an idea of what to do, (laughs) an action, whereas philosophical ethical discussion can argue about or discuss philosophical claims and how they relate to each other and whether one trumps another via Mm. a logical process of reasoning. We use that uh, philosophical discussion process, but... It moves more to, well, what does this mean in terms of what the clinician will go away and say to the family? What does it mean in terms of what options are given or what treatment is really ethically okay to do? So they've got a, it's applied. (laughs) It's not a philosophical discussion to think about concepts. Yes, I agree with Claire. I think that a key difference is that clinical ethics in the end is action oriented and there needs to be an actionable decision. The other thing, Ros, that's different for me is that if I think about a philosophical bioethics context, and that might be, for example, in teaching or having a discussion in a tutorial group, in that setting, the ethicist, the philosophy lecturer, might set out a neat, well-reasoned through argument to demonstrate a line of thinking to students and perhaps maybe invite them to comment on it. But there's a clear sort of teacher or expert taking that expert role and setting things out clearly. That doesn't work in the clinical ethics context because on our model we are doing collaborative moral deliberation and there's no point in the ethicist walking in at the start of the meeting and saying, okay, so I've thought this through and here's my argument and here's the correct conclusion, it's only taken us five minutes and we can all go off now. Because the actual process of working it through is an ethically important thing in itself. Claire, you talk about this process of working it through, this idea of expert thinking being visible in clinical ethics. How do you see that playing out, that uh, clinical ethics expertise? 
I think there are two things that ethicists do. One is that they analyse the nature of the ethical question and the value uncertainty associated with that ethical problem. But the second is the facilitation role and that they help people voice their concerns. So they start to give them a language to use. The other really important thing that they do is they unsettle the sort of settled morality that clinicians sometimes bring in where they have a view of this is the way we do things, this is the right way of communicating to families or making clinical decisions. And by being asked to explain, you know, just why do Mm. they do it that way is an unsettling, but it seems to me quite comforting process for clinicians because they relish the opportunity of being able to explain uh, what they do to other people. Lynn, you referred before to your past as a (laughs) philosophical bioethicist or your past in philosophical bioethics. Do you still see yourself as a philosopher? No. Claire's looking at me. Uh, No, I don't think I do. I would describe myself as an ethicist and the difference I would see comes back to the fact that an ethicist has to deal in the real world. So in that development from philosopher to ethicist, what do you still draw on from your philosophical background? Uh, That there should be reasons for everything. So Claire mentioned before about asking that simple question of why. Why do we think this? Why do you want to do that? Um, Why do you think that would be a good thing or a bad thing? That basic emphasis on reasons and reasons being able to be articulated and underneath each reason, at least for a long way down, there's another why question and another reason and another why until we try to drill down to fundamentals. I guess philosophical training also teaches me that there'll be a point at which that chain of drilling down to fundamentals has to stop and we've got to a point where we can't sensibly ask why anymore. So I, I know to not keep going with that ad infinitum. So that's one thing. Another is from ethical theory that I think is really important is to accept and recognise that there is more than one value. So protecting a child from physical risk matters. For most people, having uh, the opportunity for fertility in the future or at least um, having an opportunity to make choices in your life, that's another thing that matters. And they can potentially sit there as conflicting. We can't always produce a resolution which is neat and tied up. And that comes from value theory in philosophy, which essentially says we have to accept that not only do we live in a pluralist society, but even if we all had the same set of values, there would be more than one value which we have to balance or weigh up against each other. The other really important thing I think for a philosopher going into a hospital setting is not to talk too much. I probably talk more now than I used to, but it was really important just to ask a couple of questions and listen and learn. But that has reinforced for me the idea that the skill of philosophy that's useful in the clinical setting is the skill of asking what are sometimes apparently very innocent or naive questions, but asked with a particular purpose and a particular framing in mind. And that's what advances thinking, asking questions, not delivering answers. 
Lynn Gillam, Associate Professor in Health Ethics. And you also heard there Claire Delaney, Associate Professor in the Department of Medical Education, both from the University of Melbourne and both speaking there with Ros McDougall. And that brings us to the end of the Philosopher's Zone for another week. Jump on the website. You can leave us a comment or check out some past programs. And of course, if you're not subscribing to our podcast yet, then feel free to do that too. We love our podcast subscribers. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for joining me. See you next time. Mm